Interoptic makes high-quality optical modules you can rely on. Plus, they are far cheaper than OEM optics. Save big money without compromising quality. Visit interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers, and we thank Interoptic for being an excellent sponsor. Interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers. Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. You got me, Ethan, and Greg is here, and we're co-hosting today with our special guest, Wes uh, Purvis, who's going to educate us about Wi-Fi 6E. And you're like, wait a minute, we just had Wi-Fi 6. What's the 6E thing? Well, it's all about the 6 gigahertz spectrum that, at least in America, the FCC has approved for unlicensed use and what that's going to mean for the wireless industry. And uh, we get into it deep with Wes, don't we, Greg? Yeah, we do go pretty deep, um, not just in terms of the technology, but picking apart why this really, really matters, because it's a vast amount of spectrum. 1.2 gigahertz is sort of like four times what we had in the in the five gigahertz spectrum. It really changes the whole game in the US. Now, while that might not be happening in the rest of the world, okay, we talk a little bit about why that's going to happen, and we talk a little bit about when products might turn up. And I think... Uh, people might be surprised with some of just when they're going to arrive because it's not going to be soon. No, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get into the timeline and it's not, again, it not not soon. And if you figure what the estimates are for uh, the future now, when we get to that future, it will be even more future. These things always get prolonged, it seems like. so. Yeah. Well, enjoy this conversation we have about Wi-Fi 6E and the 6 gigahertz spectrum. Wes Purvis, welcome to Heavy Networking to talk Wi-Fi 6E with us. And if you would, uh, you know, in a sentence or two, introduce yourself, man. Who are you? What do you do? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Wes Purvis. You can find me on Twitter at Real Wes Purvis. Uh, I'm a product manager uh, you know, focusing on, on Wi-Fi at, uh, at Mist, which is now part of Juniper. At Mist, which is part of Juniper. Okay. So let, let's get right into this, Wes. There is Wi-Fi 6. We've talked about that. That was 802.11ax before the rebranding, the great rebranding happened, that it became Wi-Fi 6. But now there's a new thing, Wi-Fi 6E. Um, can you? What is the difference between the two of these? Yeah, it's the confusing names, right? But uh, Wi-Fi Alliance meant to simplify, and to some extent they did. But uh, so Wi-Fi six is is the technology of Wi-Fi, right? It's it's based on the IEEE 802.11ax, and uh, Wi-Fi six E is new available uh, unlicensed spectrum for use, uh, and so Wi-Fi will be able to operate in this new unlicensed spectrum. And from the Wi-Fi side, that's going to be called. Uh, Wi-Fi 6E that operates in the um, new unlicensed 6 gigahertz spectrum. Got it. So Wi-Fi 6E is the same as Wi-Fi 6, except we have more spectrum. And that more spectrum, we've we've caught in the news. It's been a pretty visible thing. It's up in the 6 gigahertz range. So here's a question I have for you. Why did we need to add spectrum at 6 gigahertz? Was 5 gigahertz too busy? What was driving this? You know, let's, let's give credit to where credit is due. This is uh, vision from the FCC. Spectrum does not become unlicensed very frequently. Um, you know, today we have um, a couple of unlicensed bands. Uh, Wi-Fi predominantly uses the 2.4 gigahertz ISM bands uh, and and some of the uni bands in, in five gigahertz. And so in, in the 2.4 band, we have uh, about 80 megahertz of spectrum. In the five gigahertz uh, range, we have about 500 megahertz of spectrum to use. And now with six gigahertz, we'll have about 1,200 megahertz of additional spectrum to use. Uh, so it more than doubles the available spectrum. Uh, and, and I think that you know, the, the FCC uh, and, and you know, we're hoping other regulatory bodies around the world 
are seeing that uh, Wi-Fi and unlicensed uh, uh, technologies are really uh, essential to the way our, our society operates. Um, you know, think of how often you, you're using Wi-Fi. And so it's, it's not that, you know, existing uh, spectrum bands are, are too busy. You know, we're able to make work with what we have. But this opens up an entirely new set of possibilities that, that we haven't had before. Hmm. Well, it sounds like you're telling me there was a government agency that was proactive rather than reactive. That doesn't seem very likely, but that's what you're saying. They're planning for the future. The FCC and other regulatory bodies have, have been trying to open up spectrum for a long time. Um, you know, in the, in the unlicensed bands, you know, in the unlicensed realm, um, you know, at, at first they were looking at uh, in between what's called Uni2 and uh, Uni2 Extended. So this is, um, you know, Wi-Fi channels like 68 through 90, whatever. Uh, and, you know, we were excited to get those channels, but, you know, it's looking like looking less and less likely that those channels will become available. Uh, but now, you know, they started looking at the six gig band and realized, you know, there's actually, we can probably work around the incumbents uh, in the spectrum space uh, to make a, a usable solution for, uh, for unlicensed, which is very exciting. I think it's also worth noting that the uh, regulatory bodies have a mandate from government to make money out of spectrum. It's actually usually seen as a substantial money earner. And if you were around in the in the turn of the century, around the 2000s, when the mobile companies were buying out licenses, they were selling spectrum licenses in uh, tens of billions of dollars per license. And that I think there was a lot of expectation that the FCC would rather take the money than give it away to industry. Is that a fair statement? Well, this frequency band will still be licensed uh, in, in some parts. Uh, so the FCC will still be able to, uh, and other regulatory bodies will still be able to collect their money. Um, mm. But there, there, there can be coexistence. A lot of the incumbents, um, uh, you know, are, are satellite and, and microwave links. They're, you know, highly directional antennas. They're not as susceptible to, um, you know, a low power type uh, Wi-Fi access point. So this, so what you're saying is they're still going to sell six gigahertz for high powered use. So if you want to do a, you know, hundred watt, two hundred watt antenna with a, you know, five foot dish on the back, so you can do a fifty kilometer shot, they'll still sell that as licensed, so that they can control the spectrum in that space. Because the impact of a high powered signal is very broad if it's not managed carefully. That's right. Yeah. So so think about what's what's being used in this in this uh, spectrum space today. Um, it's predominantly uh, fixed microwave links. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of those. There's also some satellite links uh, that are in use. And if you're familiar with electronic news gathering, like the, you know, a, a TV truck that's, uh, you know, local news broadcasting its live uh, live stand up from somewhere in the city and has a truck that, you know, beams yeah. a signal back to the station. Um, you know, those are the types of, of incumbents. Um, there's a couple others, but... Um, you know, largely yeah. those are are point to point links um, with directional antennas, strong signals. Yeah, strong signals. Signal. Yeah, whereas we're sort of talking here, um, very weak signals in the six gigahertz spectrum. So it's sort of like almost selling away the giving away the noise floor, rather than giving away the entire spectrum. It's a different radiation pattern, though. I mean, paint point to point those beams and the dishes tend to focus them a bit, so it, mm. they don't bleed over quite as much. In other words, because someone's got a point-to-point -point link in this mm. range in the city, I don't think that hurts our usability in the unlicensed or, or, or would it, Wes? So, um, you know, there's there's a couple of ways that this is being allocated. Uh, the spectrum is being, you know, allocated for um, one use is, is called uh, low power indoor LPI. And 
this is across the entire 1200 megahertz of spectrum. Um, and so there's some stringent, uh, we'll say power requirements um, that you have to meet. You can only transmit at a certain power level or, or uh, actually a, a, what's called a power spectral density. Um, and so you have to stay below that limit and you, know, you have to stay indoors um, to use LPI. You know, the, these, these units are not allowed to have uh, external antennas. They're not allowed to be weatherized and they have to get power from a wall. Um, those, are, those are the kind of rules to kind of keep you in boundaries. Um, and so the thought is, hey, if we have these, if we have the, you know, the four walls of a building, a roof, um, you know, these, these fixed, uh, you know, point to point links are, are not going to be susceptible to interference. So low power indoor can operate across the entire 1200 megahertz. Um, and then there's going to be also standard power devices, uh, which will require uh, automated uh, frequency coordination solution. And so basically, the device will have to register uh, to a central database. That database does some calculations and determines if you're, if you're too close to a fixed link and then removes you know, whatever frequency that fixed link is, is operating on from the available channels. Um, so there's kind of two ways um, and possibly a third that, that's being um, looked at. But uh, you know, the, what we're most excited about for, you know, for immediate use is this, this concept of, of very low power um, indoor use uh, because it's just a, you know, it's going to, at least in the enterprise space, um, it's going to be uh, just totally game changing. I mean, we talked about what the indoor and the outdoor channels do. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing then you don't feel that whatever exists there, the licensed users in this range are going to clobber us too much. Those of us that are firing up the, the unlicensed stuff. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the point of the, uh, of the, of the AFC, right? So from, from the AFC perspective, uh, it's, it's meant to at least non, you know, the unlicensed from interfering with the licensed, um, and then for the low power indoor, um, yeah, we're, you know, the, we're way below the azimuth of these antennas, very, very likely there will be no interference. You know, that's the thought of the FCC. Um, there's going to be no interference between those two devices. Okay. Fair enough. Um, can you, one thing we didn't talk about, we just said six gigahertz. Can you talk about the exact range? Like there's specific numbers that actually starts down in five and ends up in seven covering this range. Can you define what those are? Yeah. So um, if we if we look at the five gig band, um, five gig goes from, say, uh, 5100 ish. Uh, I think it's 5180 is the lowest channel. It's channel 36. And then uh, there's some gaps, but we go all the way up to um, like 5825. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Nice work. Yeah. I'm looking uh, at the diagram. So, you know, <laughs> and, and then uh, and then six gigahertz starts you know about 100 uh, 125 megahertz above that um so there's a little bit of protection built in between um you know what we call uh uni 3 uh and the uni 5 spectrum which is where 6 gigahertz quote unquote begins so the starting frequency of of 6 gigahertz is uh 5955 and uh and then it goes all the way up uh with uni 6 7 and 8 uh all the way up to 7115 mm. so we, that allows us to have 59 20 megahertz channels, where today we have uh, 25, 25, 20 megahertz channels in the five gig band. So it's more than doubling our, our available channels. And we have three 20, gigahertz, 20 megahertz channels at the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. Yeah, yeah. 2.4 yeah, is, you know, we got three to 25 to 59, just a, an right. incredible amount of spectrum. And the flip side of that is that even if you get some interference on some of those channels, you can move to the other ones and you'll still get through. So even if you're 
you know, in somehow your indoor is getting interference from somebody else in the six gigs, there's lots of other channels for you to switch away to. Yeah. And yeah. the second impact of that, like the breadth of that, is that you can also have 29, 40 megahertz channels or 14, 80 megahertz channels or even 160 megahertz channels. That's where you combine the channels together. And that's proved to be useful for very high speed. So you, when we talk about gigabit Wi-Fi, they're using multiple channels to do that. In, t- in today's you know, Wi-Fi wi- in, with, with 5 gigahertz, um, we have the ability to go all the way up to uh, eight bonded channels, which is 160 megahertz of spectrum. But if you do that, you only have in the US, there's only two channels, two 160 megahertz channels. So that's not practical. Uh, 80 megahertz channels are typically also not practical um, outside of the home. Um, and so most enterprise deployments are using uh, 20 or, or 40 megahertz channels uh, for their channel width. With six gigahertz, because there's so much spectrum and actually the way that the power limits are, you're actually allowed to use higher power when you have wider channel bandwidth. And so there's actually a little bit of incentive to use a wider channel bandwidth um, and we have more channels. So the thought is, you know, instead of the default channel being a 20 megahertz or a 40 megahertz channel today, the new default might be a 40 or even an 80 megahertz channel in, in most enterprise situations. <laughs> big, big words there on, uh, on saying 80, 80 wide as a default because any device that comes with an 80 default is usually frowned upon very much like my Apple Airport Extreme that's yep. 80 and I can't change it. They won't even let me change it. So, I mean, it just clobbers everything around it. So to actually get to a point in the spectrum where 80 is is a good thing, potentially, um, mm. that, that might be a default that makes sense. And the bandwidth we get out of that is, uh, that's kind of dramatic. Yeah, it's it's just, it's incredible. Um, you, you know, we've, we've heard the term gigabit Wi-Fi now for years, <laughs> uh, and we may actually be able to realize gigabit Wi-Fi. It's really interesting in the sense too, because at six gigahertz, um, like the higher the frequency, the less the penetration becomes. Um, but as you go to a higher clock rate, the more data you can get through. So I guess in some sense, the increase in power is to try and extend the distance so that we get similar performance to five gigahertz. Is that reasonable assumption? The way that uh, that the power is regulated today is through something called EIRP, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, your your maximum transit power. And so it's Across, the, across bandwidth, the EIRP remains constant. So in five gig band, for example, we can have a, a 36 dBm EIRP. In the six gigahertz world, uh, power is regulated by something called power spectral density or PSD. Um, and so instead of having a constant EIRP, we have a constant PSD. And so PSD is basically, you, you know, how much power is there relative to a um, frequency range? And so actually when you double the amount of frequency, um, your PSD remains constant and your EIRP actually increases by three dB, which is double. Um, so that's why, um, so in six gigahertz world, we need a five dBm per Hertz or per megahertz, uh, PSD. And now there is actually, um, this isn't final. It may actually increase to, to eight. The FCC is actually still looking at that, but what that five dBm per megahertz PSD gets us is, an EIRP of, uh, of 18 out of 20 megahertz channel, 21 out of 40 megahertz channel, or 24 out of an 80 megahertz channel. And now the noise floor does increase as our channel width gets uh, wider. So our effective EIRP also remains constant. I know this is probably tough to visualize without a, a visual, but uh, ju- just know that 
you know, as we increase our channel width, we're actually um, going to be allowed to use a slightly higher um, uh, EIRP in six gigahertz land because of the concept of a uh, power spectral power spectral density. density. Yeah. And so when we make this sort of point that six megahertz, six gigahertz will have the same reach or penetration capabilities as five gigahertz. That's why. Is that a fair assumption? No, it's 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 actually we're expecting fairly similar um, propagation uh, properties between five gigahertz and six gigahertz because most access points do not actually transmit at maximum transfer power today. So in the enterprise where you're deploying, let's say for an AP every, I don't know, 2,500 square feet, that's an AP every, every 40, 45 feet, which is common, you know, in, in enterprise use cases where you have, you know, cubicles and, and dense uh, environments. Typically the transfer power of an access point is around 18 to 21 dBm EIRP um, mm-hmm. anyway. And so that that actually matches pretty closely with six gigahertz uh, transit power or EIRP, um, and the propagation properties between five gig and six gig are are fairly similar as well. Um, there's about a dB to dB and a half attenuation difference, you know, free space path loss difference between um, you know five gig and six gig. Um, yeah. So it's 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 actually fairly similar. Um, we're expecting that uh, designs are not going to have to change a whole lot, provided you're already yeah. doing a density type. Uh, and the thing is that this is still such a tiny amount of power being radiated. You're still, if you're talking about it in raw power terms, you're talking milliwatts. It's, not very much at all. It's, it's basically not much more than the background cosmic radiation energy that's streaming out of the sky in the daylight. Yeah, it's many orders of magnitude less. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's, if anybody's listening and you ever wonder why people get um, the actual power, like we've used all these numbers and the real, if you break it down, it's literally the sort of radiation that comes out of your watch sort of stuff. That's that's the sort of level of radiated energy that it, that you're literally turning into a coherent signal. It's almost magic. If you've ever done any study in RF and like antenna design and uh, radio propagation. It. I'm always just boggled that data would transfer over wireless. Actually, works at all. It's, <laughs> it's mystic that such weak signals, such literally so powerless, the signals are so powerless that they work at all. Is actually kind of just still boggles me every day, almost. Yeah, and and works reliably. It's gotten quite reliable. <laughs> hmm. Now, the other part about this is if you're still using this, we do mostly expect to see this used indoors and of course it's going to be used outdoors as well mostly to cover you know small outdoor spaces like you know gathering areas lunch areas things like that is there any difference in performance outdoors to indoors or is it just going to be the same so so yeah there, there's there's actually different uh different rules for for indoors and outdoors with different transfer power allowances um, and so the low power indoor ap's will follow that psd which i was talking about um, and so it's, you know, relatively low power, you know, again, LPI means that the access point, uh, cannot have external antenna connectors. It, it cannot be weatherized and it has to plug into a wall for power. Um, so if you're in an environment where you're, you're okay with those constraints, then you're likely following the spirit of low power indoor. If you are, however, need to weatherize your AP or you need to attach external antennas, um, then you need the standard, uh, the standard power APs. Which, uh, if I recall, it's following standard EIRP guidelines, and I think the limit they're looking at is 36 dBm uh, EIRP, which is similar to what we have today with five gigahertz. Yeah, so um, very, very, still very low power. It's just when you focus the beam, the signal can go a lot further instead of radiating it in a 360 degree. 
Yep. So the big difference there is, is the, yeah, the, the antennas that you're allowed to use. Hmm. And uh, so you'd still be able to use it outdoor for point to point, but my understanding is there's still some obligation to register your system with the FCC. So we should just back up and say, this is all FCC. This is not global yet. Each um, other country has to yet approve its own decisions around the allocation of the spectrum. And Europe, for example, is not likely to actually allocate the entire same same amount of spectrum because it's already allocated some of it away. Yeah, that, and that's a good point. Today, the FCC is the only regulatory body uh, who has approved uh, six gigahertz use. And uh, that happened in, in late April. So next to follow is likely uh, Europe and CEPT. Mm-hmm. Um, they've already begun. They might only have half the spectrum, I think. That's right. Yeah, they're, they're looking at about, um, about 500 megahertz, I think, of unlicensed spectrum. I mean, that's still a lot of spectrum. And then what does that mean for the rest of the world? Um, and so typically the rest of the world either follows FCC or they follow Europe. Um, so we're expecting, um, you know, uh, Asian countries and, and countries around the world, uh, once Europe uh, adopts six gigahertz, which we're hopeful will happen, um, you know, kind of end of the year, early next year timeframe, uh, the rest of the world will then begin to, you know, adopt their own six gigahertz rules, either following FCC or, or Europe. So if the EU only allocates 500 gigahertz, 500 megahertz instead of the 1.2 that the FCC has allocated, does that have an impact on the industry? Does that restrict products, restrict capabilities in some way? No, it's, 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 it's no different uh, from what we have to deal with today. Um, uh, Europe, for example, uh, has fewer channels than the US. In the, in the US, we have 25, 20 megahertz channels in five gig. Previously, Europe had 20. Um, they did not allow Uni3. Um, and they've actually recently allowed uh, Uni3 for low power use. Um, so now they're actually up to 24 channels. It's going to be up to vendors uh, to certify in those countries and, and make sure that, the, that their equipment is, is compliant with the regulations in those countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it's really no different from what we have to deal with uh, today. Just because the six gigahertz is fully open doesn't mean there's going to be a lot, you know, wireless is going to work better in America than it does in other countries because they chose to allocate this much spectrum. Yeah, it's, you know, in theory, having more channels gives you more capacity, um, but it's, you know, additional capacity as it is, um, you know, it's, it's icing on the cake. So, so what will we use? What will the six gigahertz actually be used for? Um, like in, it's going to be years before, like at this stage, it's still only a preliminary approval. Vendors haven't uh, started designing the products. I believe some of the silicon that's out there is six gigahertz ready, but obviously the antennas aren't. What do you think will be the first products to come to the market? It's a good question. Um, so now that we have approval, uh, there is incentive to design products. More correctly, you no longer have no incentive not to design products. That's correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't actually have an incentive to design products, except that you want to sell something. But yeah. You'd always have done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good point. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so uh, chipsets are sampling slash becoming available now um, mm. for certain silicon uh, vendors. Um, but the chipset's not the only story, right? So there's there's also the you know the front end, the the fem for the radio, um, yeah. the filters that go on, um, and so that stuff is just now becoming available. And so we're thinking that. We're going to start to see probably consumer grade devices who just take, you know, the off the shelf design from the chipset manufacturer. Those could become available, you know, towards the end of, of 2020, towards mm-hmm. the end of this year. 
client devices, uh, the first client devices could also come around that same time frame and into 2021. As far as enterprise gear goes, um, you know, a little bit more design effort goes into those uh, typically. And uh, so we're expecting uh, enterprise gear to come into 2021, uh, most likely mid to late 2021 is is uh, is the expectation. Got it. 2023. Got it. but then we need client devices right so just because we have uh you know we're going through the same thing with wi-fi 6 um uh we've had wi-fi 6 ap's for uh you know almost two years now Mm -hmm. and uh what is our client adoption you know we're we're at we're still at about 10 to 15 percent uh, client adoption for Wi-Fi 6 clients. Well, two years if you go, I mean, it just got standardized like within the last few months. So it's, yeah. yes, there's been early kind of preliminary designs and stuff out there. I think a lot of people have just held off because mm, not standardized. They keep changing stuff. I don't know. Well, it's also about clients as well. I mean, for, you can produce a, an AP with the features all you like and sell it to early adopters in the theory that, you know, Whenever the clients arrive, you're ready to go. You know, it's a bit like 400 gig and 800 gig. My switch is 800 gig ready. And my data center is currently, you know, I'm connecting servers at 10 gig. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, exactly. it's a kind of like, a, well, you know, just how far into the future. I, I thought I might see six gigahertz used for mesh backhaul. It's very popular now to put uh, Wi-Fi extenders into houses to take away the black spots. It sort of struck me that six gigahertz might be a useful spectrum to create a high bandwidth backhaul between nodes in the network and leave the 2.4 and 5 gig spectrum for client use. Yeah, and and that's certainly a possibility. Uh, Mesh is allowed by the FCC. That was it was explicitly allowed, and so that is that is certainly a possible use case of a six gigahertz AP. Because then you don't have to wait for clients. You can just, it's between your chipset, you know, between your devices. Like if you're making a consumer device, you just, you know, my TP links works with the TP link extender. It doesn't work with everybody else's extension yeah. technology. Yep. Is the network design going to change much, Wes? I mean, you said overall, like AP design isn't going to change too much. What about the back end network design, like switching uh, power over Ethan? Are there going to be different power requirements we got to think about, et cetera? Yeah, so that, that's a good point. So if you think about design in two parts, right? So the RF part and the wired network part. So RF part, we're not expecting that there's going to be a lot of design difference. You know, we're, we're likely going to see different types of APs, um, you know, two radios, three radios, three radios, meaning a two, four, a five, and a six gig radio. Potentially, we could also see two, uh, two radio APs as well, um, where, you know, one of the radios is band selectable between, you know, uh, one of the bands and six gigahertz. Um, and so depending on if it's a two radio or a three radio, um, that could impact the wired network because a three radio AP is going to need more power. Um, we're already pushing the limits of 802.3 AT power as it is with current Wi-Fi 6 access points. Um, and, and even some Wi-Fi 6 access points today, some of the eight spatial stream ones out there need 802.3 BT power. Right? They, need, they need a 60 watt power supply. And so we're expecting that with the three radio AP, you know, there's more than likely we're going to need 802.3 BT power. With a two radio, uh, possibly we could still stay under uh, AT power. Um, but uh, so depending on the, the types of APs that, that come out and, and the types of APs that, that people buy, um, they may need more power. And then the, the, piece, the other piece is the backhaul, right? And so 
Um, today, access points have, you know, most of the flagship APs out there have multi-gigabit Ethernet ports, um, whether it's a two and a half gig or a five gig Ethernet port. But those links today are not very saturated. I personally still don't believe there's a need for more than a gig on, a, on an AP. We're, we're just not seeing that type of bandwidth. With, with six gigahertz and the, the option or the, the high likelihood that we're gonna, the default will be uh, wider channels, whether it's 40 or 80 megahertz channels. And so if we have 80 megahertz, six gigahertz uh, radio, a 40 megahertz, uh, five gigahertz radio, and a 20 megahertz, 2.4 gigahertz radio, all in the same AP, then the, the use case of uh, multi-gigabit Ethernet or multi-gigabit backhaul becomes a little bit more compelling. Yeah, because you end up with a, a situation where if you've got enough talkers coming in on three different radio bands, potentially, with a burst of high bandwidth traffic, you'll, you'll the only other way to cope with it would be your big buffers in the AP, which isn't helpful either, because then you're introducing latency. Yep. So you, you're right. Uh, uh, now, as you say, it sounds like the case for a bigger backhaul even with the sporadic typical Wi-Fi traffic patterns that we see, it, it does become a bit more compelling to deal with at least microbursts. I don't know. I'm still not exactly sold that you know is, it's going to be a requirement, um, but I think it'll help. And as you said, it'll help with those microbursts. Um, and I think PoE is is probably the more compelling use case. You know, if you can't power the thing, uh, then it's not. A, it's <laughs> okay, not so hope. everybody in the enterprise heard you say PoE. PoE is a thing if you're going to start hanging 6E access points, meaning you'd have to do closet switch upgrades. Okay, yep. so what are the major use cases for 6E going to be that are going to drive people to make such an infrastructure investment? So yeah, major use cases um, uh, uh, is I think first and foremost is is, is general network access. Um, so so Wi-Fi um, has has shifted and and truly become the predominant access medium, right? So people, you know, most devices nowadays don't even have an Ethernet port on them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for your MacBook, you have to attach a dongle, um, and a lot of Windows devices too. Um, and you know, not not even talking about your smartphones, um, and so just having the additional wireless capacity, um, I think, is an extremely compelling use case. Um, you know, there's other other things out there. You know, other use cases like uh, mesh and and personal area networks and and um, those types of things. But I, I think by and large, the predominant use case is is going to be for general network access. So it's just going to be an improvement to what I've got. Then it's going to be like five G, except it's one better because it's six G. <laughs> <laughs> if the question is why would somebody upgrade to this or why would somebody move to this um why would somebody spend more because likely you know if you go to a three radio ap the um ap's are going to cost more money you know i i think the the use case is are you running out of capacity today do you have do you have slowness on your wi-fi network today um, yes if you do yes uh, then six gigahertz is likely compelling which is why i'm hardwired when i'm hardwired i can haul 400 megs to the internet off this machine when I'm Wi-Fi, I can get a max of about two, 180, 190. Yeah, and so, so you know, the question is, do you need that amount of bandwidth? Um, you know, yes. some people do. Yeah. Um, well, this, well, Greg, we're talking two different <laughs> use cases, though. I mean, I, I yeah. know you're being a little tongue-in-cheek here. I mean, but you're a like a residential yeah. user with a, with a specific application. That's one use case. That home yeah. user, like you, you and I, we're both in the same boat. We have high bandwidth demands. Uh, from our Wi-Fi networks, but very low client density compared to an enterprise with a ton of APs and, you mm. know, 10, 20, 50 times the client density that you and I deal with. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, the enterprise is going to do the big spend. Why are they, if they've just rolled, if they've got 
AC, let's say, and, and they haven't even moved to AX yet, would that be the leap? I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to six E. I'm gonna I'm, that's that's mm-hmm. the time. I'm on AC. It's time for a refresh. Six E. Nothing stopping me. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it fits into your timeframes, if it fits into that customer's timeframes, um, you know, knowing that uh, you know likely uh, APs aren't coming out until uh, next year, and uh, and and devices, uh, client devices, you know, y- you're essentially building the network and waiting for client devices to come. Um, that that and that's certainly um, a valid use case, um, and we think that people are going to go that route. Um, but and. But then it also depends, you know, do you need to upgrade today? Are, are your, you know, some of those ACAPs are, are going end of life. Um, some, some people just have, have terrible bandwidth constraints today. Um, and they, they may benefit from a, you, you know, going to a six network and not waiting for Wi-Fi 6E. So it, it just depends on what are the constraints or what are the problems that this, you know, the particular institution is trying to solve, at least in my opinion. This is the sponsored part of the podcast. We were talking about the thing, whatever that was. And now we're going to talk about this other thing from our sponsor. And no need to press skip. It is not going to take me long to help you understand what Interoptic is all about. Interoptic makes high quality optics for your network gear. And they sell them to you far cheaper than the network vendors are going to sell them to you. That's it. That's the main thing you should know about Interoptic. So now is the part where I deal with your objections about buying a non-OEM optic. Cool, I can do that. It is actually easy. Two objections we're going to deal with. Objection one, my networking vendor won't support my switch unless it has their optics in it. You might say, understood, I've been there. Not a problem with Interoptic. They are very familiar with this problem and they manufacture their optics to match or exceed the performance and quality of OEM optics. An optic from Interoptic is going to behave the same in your network device as the OEM optic. Interoptic devices are 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Second objection, you might say, I have had bad luck with off-brand optics, the quality's junk, so it's not worth the risk and the headache. Okay, I know why you might say that, but again, Interoptic is not a off-brand optic. They didn't fall off a truck somewhere, now they're being sold to you on eBay from username Optics for cheap. Instead, Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver, and most other companies, they do batch testing only. In other words, these guys are a reputable vendor. Interoptic's business model is to sell you an outstanding optic for far less than the OEM optic, and they can do it by not marking up the price of the optics to the crazy amount that OEMs do while still making money. Okay, so hopefully I have dealt with your biggest objections, so this is the part where I tell you what to do next, and that is visit interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers. They've got a podcast plus a full written transcript of that podcast. That's an interview that we did with the Interoptic team a while back, and we get into some of the nitty-gritty detail about optics and how they work and what's going on with them. They're actually very complicated little devices. Again, that's interoptic.com slash packet hyphen pushers, and if you do decide to ring them up, let them know that you heard about them on our show. And now is the final part, the part you've been waiting for, the part where I shut up about the sponsored bid and go back to us talking about the thing, whatever that was. Now you're you're a product manager. So as you look at this and you look at products that are in the pipeline, do do you think about cost? I mean, is it is it the kind of a thing where you're you're going to be able to build and put a six E AP out the door, and it, you're going to be able to make it price competitive so that the end user doesn't have to think very hard about it? I can get the six E, and it's basically the same price. Or do you see it where you'll end up selling probably 
two different products. You know, you don't need 6E. Here's just 6. It's cheaper. But, you know, if you want that future-proofing and extra uh, bandwidth available to you, you know, here's a 6E access point. You're going to pay a premium, but, um, but hey, you get all that 6E goodness. So if I take a step back, think about how um, Wi-Fi access points have been built for the past you know decade. Every access point typically has been a dual-band access point, meaning we've had a two radios in the AP um, for client-serving purposes. One is 2.4, one is 5 gigahertz. Um, before that, prior to 11N, we had single radio APs where typically they could switch back and forth uh, between 2.4 or 5, or, or maybe they were band-locked. Um, you know, they only had a 2.4 radio. And then more recently, we started to see um, uh, you know, still those two radio APs, but one of those radios could switch between 2.4 and 5. So you, essentially, you could have dual 5 gigahertz from in one single AP. You know, and then, so we, we've had this coupling of, you know, do we actually need to have a, a dedicated uh, you know, 2.4, a dedicated 5 gigahertz radio? Um, and now the question is, do we actually need a dedicated 6 gigahertz radio? Uh, and I think that remains to be seen. Um, I think because uh, we there's not going to be 6 gigahertz devices immediately, we're still going to need at a minimum 5 gigahertz in the AP, possibly even 2.4, depending on the use case or, you know, how many legacy devices the, uh, you know, the, the customer has. And so, you know, I, I see that, you know, if we go the, the two radio route, likely, you know, that could be price competitive, you know, that might need to be a little more expensive because there's additional filtering that goes in to, you know, allow the band select between, you know, let's say 2.4 or 6 gig and 5 gig or 6 gig, whatever it comes out to be versus a three radio AP, which we know is going to be uh, more expensive uh, because of, you know, it's entire third radio. And so it, it really, you know, I, I think initially we're going to, we're going to still be tied to um, a six gigahertz radio in the same AP as uh, 2.4 and 5 gig uh, in the future, will we go to single radio APs again? And I, I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. typically the, the higher cost is pulling the ethernet cable as opposed to the AP itself. And so that's kind of the appeal of having a multi-radio AP. But, uh, you know, this, this whole notion of additional uh, frequency range kind of has us reevaluating what is a, you know, what does an AP actually look like? Yeah, and from a physical point of view, not from a logical point of view. Yep. Um, because do you want to have 2.4 gig, 5 gig, 6 gig antennas inside of that and radio chips, or do you just want to narrow it down and reduce cost? Do you just want to make it six? You know, there's a point where you might want to just say, maybe I just make, you know, there's a cost factor here, there's a software factor, there's a whole bunch of things in there, isn't there really? Yep. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but there is no way that we're going to get a three radio AP that's the same price as our old uh, two radio APs. It sounds like the cost is just whatever it is. I guess I ask that in, in the sense that a lot of times when new switching hardware comes out, that's bigger, faster, better. It's more or less the same price as the old one. And they just kind of like, yeah, we want you to upgrade. Do the upgrade now. See, look at the price. It's practically the same. <laughs> Um, because at the end of the day, ASICs and such and manufacturing costs, it doesn't cost you more to make the thing that's faster now, not after a while, once that technology's seen some some broader adoption. Um, but with a three radio AP, Wes, your point is it's definitely going to be a more expensive unit, which again has you thinking about what is an AP these days? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I see it as more not going to a, a, you know, a newer, faster unit. It's, it's going from like a 24 port model to a 48 port model. You know, it, hmm. you know, you have, you have higher cost of goods, right? You're, you're putting more, putting more ports on that AP or putting more ports on that switch, you know, in a three radio, we're, we're adding a new radio uh, and, and radios are expensive. <laughs> You know, the chipsets aren't so expensive in a, in a certain way. Like they're not cheap, but um, yeah, most and, and the whole package, right? The, with the with the filtering and the front end modules, uh, it, it comes out to be a significant cost for the for the AP. If I'm hearing about six E, and I'm the kind of person that wants to just jump right on board because it's new and shiny, are there any risks to me if I were to be an early adopter of six E? When I mean, we're still at least months away from any kind of product hitting, if not years. So, but still. Uh, I think the biggest risk is finding a, a 6E network, right? So if if you buy a client device, you know how long is it going to be before you find a 6E network? Or conversely, if you if you run a 6E network, how long until you have clients come on? <laughs> I think adoption is 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 going to be the the biggest hurdle from a technology perspective. Um, uh, 6E is is going to be built upon uh, Wi-Fi six, um, which is being you know which has been in, you know in, in the wild for you know two years now. So, uh, you know, from a technology standpoint, wouldn't, I would not expect there to be, uh, risks. Um, but from a, you know, usability adoption standpoint, I think that's the biggest risk. Do you feel that eventually given enough time, 6E will be ubiquitous? That's just what all of us are going to end up having. I do. Yeah. You know, it took us, how long did it take us for five gigahertz to become, uh, ubiquitous, uh, five you years? know, eight years. Yeah. 10 years. I, I think that's probably fair. So I, I think after a certain amount of time, you know, 10 years, five years, um, we will see six gigahertz become extremely common just because there's so much additional spectrum. Yeah. It's just astonishing how much spectrum, like the FCC wasn't expected to give like 1.2 gigahertz of spectrum, just open access, have at it, yeah. when if, if, there was a whole bunch of money on the table that they could have taken by selling it off in chunks. One other thing I would add is, so that's 1.2 gigahertz of additional spectrum. If you look at like the AT&Ts and the Verizons with their license spectrum, they, they have less than, typically those guys have less than 150 megahertz, um, you know, even about 100 megahertz of licensed spectrum. And just mm. to put into perspective how much, how much spectrum we're gaining, um, mm. you know, we have, you know, almost 10 times as much new spectrum coming uh, as as the mobile network operators have licensed to them today. Yeah, and that's a good point. Since we mentioned mobile operators, will they use it as well? So, will they put Wi-Fi onto their base stations to offload from the mobile spectrum? You know, it's it's unlicensed spectrum, so anybody can use it. Um, uh, typically, carriers have relied upon Wi-Fi heavily for mobile offload. Um, there's been talks for years of of um, doing some sort of licensed assist or, um, you know, licensed technology in the unlicensed spectrum. You know, the operators can approach this in two ways. They can, they can go the Wi-Fi route or they can roll in their own, you know, 3GPP technology uh, into six gigahertz. Um, you know, we're hoping they go the Wi-Fi route, but, uh, you know, it, it all comes down to whatever, you know, the client adoption and, and what the mobile operators end up you know, based on client adoption, if if they want to do some sort of license assist uh, in six gigahertz. So what about the passport protocol? We've seen uh, some of the wireless vendors say there's a protocol for passport, which allows telcos to roam on and off Wi-Fi and to authenticate you to the Wi-Fi using your SIM card. Is that down the, is that something that you're thinking about or considering? 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, hotspot is a, an extremely useful technology. Uh, the challenge is it's typically a venue relationship. So the venue has to make a relationship with the mobile network operator. There are some coalitions out there that will you know, act as an uh, intermediary. But the, the, the challenge is how do you enroll or get that, that uh, device profile onto the actual user device? Um, and so if you know, you're an AT&T customer, you, know, you may get that stuff enrolled. Uh, if, you know, if you're a Verizon customer, you get that uh, profile enrolled. Um, but if you're not, how do you get that enrolled? Um, so that's, that's the challenge of Passpoint. I think that there are, there are moves in the industry to, to make it a little bit more user-friendly. Um, and that'll certainly help with, uh, you know, with God, onboarding of devices onto the network. today I have to install an app and then put a manual root certificate into my key store on my iPhone. And then I can, anywhere in the UK, I can roam onto my uh, Wi-Fi from my home broadband provider. Yeah. But it's flaky and unstable and I have to delete the certificates on a regular basis and reinstall them. So the thing I like about Passpoint is that at least in my home country or in my home telco range, I can roam onto wireless uh, in the UK, particularly value because you can roam onto the underground and a wide range of locations that don't normally get mobile coverage underground, for example. But as you say, venues want to own that airspace and sell it off for money. Yep. So, but then who cares about venues? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, Wes, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge about 6E, because, of course, you're in the thick of it as a product manager having to deal with this new thing that's come up in your world. How do people follow you on the internet? If you're a blog, maybe you wrote a book, I don't know, a Twitter handle, anything like that you'd care to share? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Real Wes Purvis, and uh, happy to engage. Not that fake one. You're the real one. Got it. Yeah, I okay. don't want there to be any confusion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Wes, again, thanks for coming on and uh, and chatting with us. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Uh, if you liked this show, well, hey, go over to packetpushers.net. Lots and lots of technical resources for you as an IT infrastructure professional. And basically everything's free over there. We got lots and lots and lots of shows, over 1,500 uh, audio podcasts in our catalog that are available to you. And you can find them all there at packetpushers.net, along with our community blog. That's people like you who are writing about their real world and networking experiences, sharing their knowledge just to help make you better at what you do. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Packet Pushers. We're on LinkedIn, you know, that social media service you can probably get to when you're at work. And uh, take a minute and rate us, if you would, on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. We'd appreciate that. Last but not least, remember, too much networking would never be enough.